You're listening to sermons from Redeemer Church in Round Rock, Texas. Redeemer is a gospel-centered, missional family learning and living the way of Jesus in the suburbs of Austin. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you, Joshua. Good morning, everybody. Good morning, everybody. There we go. All right. Yeah, welcome. Glad you're here today. This is an exciting day. This is an exciting day for us as a church. We launched this church on Easter of 2012. So every Easter is a time for us to celebrate an anniversary as a church, to remember all that God has done uh, through this church family over the years. And there have been so many things that we could recount, uh, so many ways we could recount God's faithfulness to work among us and work through us in the city and beyond. And so we're grateful for that. It's also become a tradition every Easter to celebrate baptisms. And so today after this gathering, we will celebrate with nine people who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. We'll celebrate nine baptisms after this gathering. And so that's exciting. But most importantly, today is an exciting day for us because it is Resurrection Sunday. It is the event, the moment that we as Christians believed changed everything. It's the the moment in real human history when Jesus of Nazareth walked out of a tomb that we believe changed the world. That's the question that I want us to ask today as we come to the end of the Gospel of Mark. What does it mean when we say that the resurrection of Jesus Christ changes everything for those who believe? That's the question. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this privilege to gather together to celebrate the risen Christ. We thank you for your great grace poured out upon us, that you reached down, Lord, to save us through Jesus in every way. I pray that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes today as we look back at this text, that you would help us to see clearly what is often hard for us to see, and that is our need for you. Help us to acknowledge our need for you and to receive the great grace that you offer us in the risen Jesus, who changes everything for those who believe. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, there have been many moments in history that have changed things for the world. Been many moments in history. There have been discoveries in science, like like Galileo in the 1600s, who made discoveries about the solar system that changed everything for how we understand the planet. Or Louis Pasteur in the 1800s when he discovered germs. Did you know that somebody invented germs? He discovered germs and he developed germ theory in the 1800s, which led to the creation of vaccines, which have saved many, many lives in our battle against disease. There have been inventions throughout time, inventions like the printing press or the automobile or the computer that have changed the way that we live and we learn and we work. Or how about this one? More recently, in our generation, there was a world-changing moment. It happened on January 9th, 2007. Does anybody know what happened on January 9th, 2007? Anybody? There's just a couple of nerds in the room. On January 9th, 2007, Apple CEO Steve Jobs stood on a stage in San Francisco and he introduced the world to the iPhone for the first time. I think we have a photo here of the original iPhone. Look at this thing. Jobs stood on stage and he said, Today, Apple is going to reinvent the phone. And I remember, I remember watching this and thinking, a phone without buttons? How is that possible? How does that work? And Jobs wasn't, Jobs wasn't lying. The iPhone truly changed things. It truly changed everyday life for us. I mean, just imagine 
telling your great-grandfather that you're watching a movie on your phone. He'd be like, what? And you're like, yeah, when, when I'm done watching a movie on my phone, I'm going to play chess on my phone, and then I might do some e-trading and some banking. It, it, it's truly changed everything for the way that we, that we live. And now we can debate whether the iPhone has been a net positive or a net negative for society, but it has certainly changed the way that we live our lives. But here's the question today. Human inventions, they can change the way that we experience life in this world. Human discoveries of science can help us better understand the world. But can these things truly change this world? In other words, can they truly change us? What can discoveries in science, what have discoveries in science or inventions in technology, what have they done to help lift the burden of sin and death, which so stains our world? What have they done to alleviate or eliminate the problem of evil, which continually plagues every single generation? You see, it's not another futuristic development or new discovery that we need, but it is the empty tomb of AD 33. I want to invite you to meet me in Mark chapter 16 if you're not already there. As we pick up in Mark chapter 16, we need to actually reach back and grab some important bits of information from the previous chapter of Mark's gospel. This church, we've been walking through the gospel of Mark chapter by chapter, moment by moment for the last year. And now we've come to the end of Mark chapter 16. And what we've seen recently is we've seen Jesus who has been unjustly accused, unjustly tried, unjustly convicted, and then sentenced to death by crucifixion. But this happens all as Jesus said it would happen. He's beaten, he's mocked, and then he's willingly crucified. And in the final moments of Jesus' agony on the cross, we're told that there is darkness that covers the earth, darkness covering the earth at 2 p.m. I want you to think about that for a moment. There's something transcendent that's happening. We're told that Jesus cries out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that the bystanders that are there start to catch a bit of the transcendence. Not only is it dark in, in, the, in the early afternoon, but we're told that the temple curtain tears in half, that some of the bystanders start to say out loud, perhaps he's calling Elijah to come and take him down from the cross. In other words, they're thinking something's happening here. We, we feel it. There's this transcendent moment, maybe another mighty miracle. This man's done many mighty miracles. Maybe another mighty miracle is coming. Even a Roman centurion, don't miss this. Mark tells us that a Roman centurion who had witnessed thousands of crucifixions, this was just another day on the job for him, watching people suffer and die. The Roman centurion says out loud, as Jesus draws his last breath, truly this man is the son of God. Something transcendent is happening at the death of Christ. It's all documented for us, but then it's over. There's no mighty miracle. Jesus dies. The text tells us that a respected man in the community, a man of the uh, of the council of the Sanhedrin, a man named Joseph of Arimathea. I think he must have felt the transcendence of the moment as well, because this man who was a part of the crew that sentenced Jesus to crucifixion comes to Pilate and requests Jesus's body. He says, could I take Jesus's body? I'd like to give him a burial. And so he takes Jesus's body and he buries him in his own family's tomb. This is absolutely stunning, by the way. That's for another sermon, though. 
It's stunning. Joseph of Arimathea opens up his own, own family's tomb in which no one had yet been laid, and he buries Jesus of Nazareth. You see, in this moment, all of the expectations of Jesus to be a savior for sinners and a king of kings are erased. From a spiritual perspective, it seems as if sin and death and evil have won. Maybe we just look forward and we put our hope in science and technology. Maybe that day will come and that day will save us. It's here where we pick up in the text. Mark chapter 16, verse 1 through 3. Despair and disappointment is thick. Verse 1. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? Stop for a moment. These three women had traveled with Jesus to Jerusalem. Not only had they traveled with Jesus to Jerusalem, but they had been a faithful part of his ministry, even in Galilee. And now they are with Jesus. They are with Jesus all the way into his death. The other disciples of Jesus fled. These women are with Jesus to his death. They see where he's buried. And now they are faithful to him even until the end. They want to see to it that Jesus has a proper burial according to the custom of the day. You see, according to the custom of the day, that someone was buried, that they needed to be first um, anointed anointed with oil. And if you were someone of honor, you would be anointed not only with oil, but with spices. And then you would be washed, then you would be wrapped, and then you would be buried. And so these women want to make sure that Jesus is appropriately buried. They're faithful to him even in his death. And as I read this, I find myself wishing that I knew more about what they were doing on the Sabbath, on that time when all activity ceased from sundown Friday to to sundown Saturday. Surely we know that they're grieving. I can imagine they're trying to make sense of what all has happened and how it is that their Savior, their Lord, their Christ is now dead. And certainly we know that they are preparing. We're told that they go and they buy spices. This would have been something that they would have had to do Saturday night. They buy spices Saturday night. And then as soon as there's a a, a peak of sunlight, They leave early in the morning to head to the tomb. Somebody would have had to fetch water so they could appropriately wash his body. And so they've got spices, they're carrying water, and they're making the trek back to the tomb. And it it reads as if on their way to the tomb, they have a realization. In all of our grief, in all of our preparation, there's something that we have not thought about. How will we get into the tomb? It's not like this was their family tomb. It's not like they could just dial up Joey of Arimathea, you know, and and get the code to the tomb. The stone itself would have been way too large for these women. It would have taken several men. Imagine those of you who have recently moved, how many neighbors and buddies you have to, to, uh, you know, dupe into helping you carry the couch up the stairs. This is what it would have been like. It's a massive Tomb. And so no doubt, some worry and some fret and some, de- some despair starts to bubble up for them as they make their way to the tomb. Look at verse 4. And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. Mark wants us to know it was very large. See, my friends, this is where we begin to see how the resurrection changes everything for those who believe. Mark is going to show us three things that the resurrection changes in this life. 
Why does Mark tell us that they are worried about who will roll away the stone? Why does he give us this detail of their fret, of their despair, of their worry? Well, I believe that he wants us to believe that because Jesus Christ has risen from the dead, we do not have to worry in this life. He wants us to see the risen Jesus going before his faithful friends on the darkest day of their life, doing for them what they know they cannot do for themselves. I'm going to say that again. Mark wants us to see the risen Christ going before his faithful disciples on their darkest day, doing for them what they cannot do for themselves. Keep this in mind. You know, Jesus, Jesus could have resurrected from the dead and walked right through that stone, couldn't he? We see him walk through a wall in a glorious body. We've seen him walk on water. He could have risen from the dead and walked right through that stone. Jesus could have risen from the dead and rolled that stone away and rolled it right back. And he still would have appeared to over 500 witnesses. He still would have stationed a heavenly messenger outside of the tomb. He'd still be alive, but he doesn't. He doesn't. I believe that the risen Christ is making a point to his faithful friends. He's saying, friends, because I am risen, what is too big for you is not too big for me. Friends, because I am risen, what seems too heavy and too much for you is not too much for me. What worries you is not worrisome to me. But you can trust a risen Christ. You see, this is the power of the resurrection changing everyday life for those who believe. Do you see the good news in this? I want you to notice that I didn't say that the resurrection eliminates all worries in this life. I didn't say that. No, we still live in a world of sin and death. We still live in a world of evil and uncertainty. None of us know what tomorrow holds. None of us will make it through this life unscathed by suffering and tragedy or evil. None of us. But for those who believe in a risen Christ, a Christ who reigns over all, we can trust him. We can trust that he reigns. We can trust him when life gets uncertain, when suffering sets in or when tragedy comes. A few years ago, one of our pastors, Chris, wrote a song for our church titled Christ Above All. And the lyrics of this song remind us of the power of the resurrection as we face life's uncertainties. The, the chorus, I won't sing it for you. You're welcome. The chorus goes like this. Above every king and kingdom he reigns. He alone has the power to save. He's our great high priest who pleads for me. Christ, Christ above all. And then the bridge says, he reigns. He reigns above all my fears. Christ, he reigns, he reigns over all my doubts. Because he reigns, he reigns. I'm laying down all control. Remind my soul. Above every king and kingdom, he reigns. You see, this is the power of the resurrection in everyday life. It allows the soul of a believer in Christ to just whew, exhale. Jesus Christ is risen. Jesus Christ is reigning. It offers us peace in the midst of all of the uncertainties in this life. There's nothing that can happen to you or that will happen to you that doesn't pass through the hands of a sovereign Savior. And in that, my friends, is good news. Do you know this kind of peace? Are you accessing this kind of peace in your life? 
There's more that Mark wants us to see. Look at verse 5. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, don't be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. These faithful women take courageous steps into the tomb. They seem that it is open, and they step inside, and they encounter a heavenly messenger. And the text tells us that they are uh, half terrified and half amazed. And you would be too. They're expecting to find one thing, the corpse of Jesus. I want you to imagine this. They're expecting to find, they saw Jesus crucified, by the way. They saw what happened to him. They witnessed it. They expected to find his body beaten and shredded, dead, devastated. They expected to find that, to unwrap him, to wash him, to anoint him, and to rewrap him. They expected to grieve weep and wail at the sight. That's what they expected, but to their amazement, they encounter something entirely different. A heavenly messenger who says to them, do not fear. Do you know that the, the ministry of Jesus is bookend by that command? Do not fear from cradle to grave. From cradle to grave. Don't fear. See, that's the word of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. That's the word of God reaching down into this world of sin and death. Do not Fear, God is acting. God is acting to save you. God is acting to redeem your life, to give you hope. The messenger says, you're here to find Jesus, right? The man who was crucified and killed, yeah, he told me that you would be coming. But he's not here. He's gotten up. He's walked out. See where they laid him? He's alive. And this brings us to the second thing that the resurrection changes for those who believe. It changes our perspective on death. So it, it, it gives us hope and peace in the midst of life, and it changes our perspective on death. Because Jesus has risen, we do not have to fear death. Listen to me for a second. There is a lot of death in your future. And I know you're thinking, well, I'm glad I came to church today. <laughs> there, there's a lot of death in your future. We're a relatively young church. Just ask any of our senior saints, any of our brothers and sisters who are a bit older than us, and they'll tell you there's a lot of death in your future, whether it's your own uh, realization of your own body and it betraying you, or the reminder that people that you love and that you have loved around you try to grieve their death and their loss. See, see de death is the most certain thing in all of our life. Benjamin Franklin famously said, right? The most certain thing in life is death and taxes. Death is the most certain thing in all of our lives, yet it is marked by the most uncertainty. It is, it is a certain uncertainty for all of us. It's the most certain thing in all of our lives. And while it's the most certain thing, we will die. Those that we love will die. Though it is the most certain thing, we just can't get used to it, can we? You would think as certain as it is and as often as we experience it, that we would be used to it by now, but we can't. None of us can stand over a casket and feel comfortable with death. None of us. As a pastor, I often do funerals. And there's a thing that happens at funerals. And if you're there, usually as a pastor, you're there early with the family and people will show up and they'll come and they'll stand over the casket and they'll say something like, he or she, they, they, look, they look great. They look great. And I, and I know what they mean. In fact, I've said the same thing too. But we all know deep down that's not true. None of us stand over a casket and feel good about death. 
feel cozy with death. None of us read the headlines or about a tragedy or read an obituary and are just dandy with the idea of death. Why is this? Why is it that though it's the most certain thing on this planet, we all will die? Why is it that it haunts us so and that it grieves us? Well, I think it's because we all know deep within our souls that death is wrong, that we ought not to die. People that we love ought not to die, whether they're 95 or they're five. It's wrong. This is the sting of death that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15. We read this earlier. It's the sting of death that he talks about, the, the hopelessness in the face of death, the finality in the face of death, the loss in the face of death, the grief and the anger in the face of death. Do you know that Jesus felt that? Do you know that Jesus felt that? that the Bible tells us that his friend Lazarus dies and Jesus comes to, his, comes to Lazarus and he, in the face of death, what does Jesus do? He weeps. It's the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. Two verse, two words. But the, the, the English Bible actually does a lousy job of translating that. It's really this idea that Jesus is angry to the point of tears. It's the sting of death. We ought not to die. People ought not to die. You see, the Bible actually agrees with us on this. We ought not to die. We were made for life and life abundantly. And this is why the gospel is such radically good news that God has done something in Jesus Christ. God has acted. God reaches down in Jesus Christ to offer salvation from the penalty of sin and, and, and rescue from the reality of death for those who repent and believe. You see, the hope of the resurrection is that it is a death-defeating act once and for all. What do I mean? It's a victory. It's a victory that we can claim by faith in Jesus. In other words, the day that Jesus defeated death is a day that all of us can defeat death. We can claim his victory for us through repentance and faith. When Jesus opened up that tomb, the claim of the gospel, the grace of God, the offer of the grace of God is that he did that once and for all who would believe. When Jesus walked out of that tomb in a glorious body, he did that all, once and for all, for those who would believe. When he folded up those grave clothes, he did that once and for all for those who would believe, for those who would claim him by faith and repentance as their savior and crown him as their king. His victory can become our victory. This is what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says, death is swallowed up in the victory of Jesus Christ. And then he, he kind of talks some smack to death. He taunts death a bit. He says, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? says, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is risen, there is no fear in life. There is no worry in life. There is no fear in death. But there's one more thing that I want to show you. Look back at verse 7 and 8. Because Jesus has risen, our lives can and should change. Because Jesus has risen, our lives can and should change. If Jesus walked out of that tomb, that means that he is Lord. He is Lord. Look at verse 7. The messenger says to the women, But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he 
told you. You see, Jesus is not only alive, but he's on the move. Jesus is on the move. There's more ministry for Jesus to do. There's more good news. There's more people for Jesus to change and heal and redeem and save. Because Jesus is alive, Jesus is on the move, and he's been on the move for over 2,000 years. Did you know that? Jesus has been on the move, the risen Jesus, changing people for 2,000 years, changing lives. The risen Jesus has been on the move, changing places and cultures and cities, transforming them. Did you know that the, these, uh, these women go back and they tell the, the, uh, the, the other disciples, and the other disciples don't believe them at first? Uh, we'll talk about this next week when we wrap up the Gospel of Mark. But the other disciples don't believe them at first, and then Jesus shows up. Validation <laughs> for these faithful women. Jesus shows up, and those men and those women were forever changed. Did you know that all of them died? They were all persecuted and, and brutally killed for this message of resurrection, it changed them forever, the risen Jesus. Despite persecution, the message of the gospel has gone forth and it will continue to go forth. Jesus is alive and Jesus is on the move and that ought to change our lives. Look at verse eight. And they went out and they fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them and they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. And this is where the text ends with Mary, Mary, Salome, finding their lives completely turned around by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Their lives are reoriented by resurrection. Their mourning is turned into joy unexplainable. The word in verse 8 in your English Bible that says astonishment, it's the word, uh, it's the, the Greek word ekstasis. It's a Greek word ekstasis. It's where we get our word ecstasy, that they are overjoyed, joy unexplainable. Their heads are spinning with awe and amazement. It's not that they're terrified and they're afraid to say anything because they're scared. It's that they are bewildered. They're amazed, joy unexplainable. And as they head back to tell the others. So their joy, their mourning is turned into joy unexplainable. Their purpose is transformed. These women become the first tellers of the good news of of the gospel. And from this day forward, the truth that Jesus is risen and reigning and coming again forever changed their life. In other words, they didn't just hear about the resurrection of Jesus and then just get back to the status quo of life in first century Palestine. Their life is forever changed. You see, this is what Jesus does for people that encounter his living power in real life. When they turn to him in faith, he turns things around. He changes things, the risen Jesus. And I want to ask you this morning, do you believe that the risen Jesus can do that for you? Do you believe that he can do that for you? Do you believe that he can turn things around in your life? Do you believe that he can turn things around in your marriage? Do you believe he can turn things around for your children? Do you believe that Jesus can turn around your struggles and your setbacks and your sins, that he can turn them around? He can. I want you to know something. These women at the tomb... They didn't hear about the resurrection. They didn't hear about the resurrection and then just get on with their life. No, it changed everything for them. And so it should for us. Because Jesus is risen, we don't have to fear in this life. Because Jesus is risen, we don't have to fear in the face of death. Because Jesus is risen, we can surrender. Because Jesus is risen, we can 
lay down control. Because Jesus is risen, we can repent of our sins and receive from him the new life and new power and new purpose that he gives. Because Jesus is risen, we don't have to waste our lives on pointless and powerless and purposeless things. Isn't that good news? Because Jesus is risen, everything is changed. As we close, I'm going to ask you this morning, what would it mean for you today to believe the resurrection of Christ? What would that mean? Maybe for the first time, maybe for you just just believe it afresh, just to take hold of its promises in your life afresh. Maybe that means that you need to hand over worry in your life afresh to Jesus. You need to let your soul exhale under his sovereign rule. What's too big for you is not too big for him. Would you believe the resurrection this morning? Maybe you need to reorient your life around Jesus and his gospel. You've drifted and you've kind of grown bored of the claim of Christ and you've turned to other things and you realize how powerless and pointless and unsatisfying they are. Would you let Jesus amaze you afresh? Would you turn to him in repentance and make him your king? Maybe there are some of you here today who have never claimed Jesus as your savior. You've never crowned him as your king. If that's you, I want to invite you to do that today, to receive his victory as your victory. Let today be the beginning of new life with Christ for you. What a gift. What a savior. What a victory. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Father, we bless you and we thank you for this day. We bless you and we thank you as we reflect upon and we recall the power of the resurrection. We bless you and we thank you that you got up out of that grave, Jesus, and in doing so, you've done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. You've defeated sin. You've defeated death. You've overcome evil. We thank you, Jesus, that not only are you risen, but you are reigning you have all power and have all authority, and we thank you that you're coming again. Lord Jesus, we pray that as we enter into a time of response, that you would meet with us, you would encourage us, you would build us up, and that we would appropriately celebrate you with all of our heart. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you are looking for info, find our website at RedeemerRR.org or download the Redeemer Round Rock app from the Android or iOS app store.